Good morning, Hillside, and, and let me add my congrats to all who celebrated milestones. That, that new baby, uh, beautiful picture, Sylvie and, uh, and Luke, we are so thrilled for you. Barry, 75 years on the planet. Uh, we're cheering you on, brother, and uh, we're so thrilled for, for uh, all the birthdays. I think of Norman Elsie, uh, who uh, just, again, 60 years. We're so proud of you. And then uh, there's also that unnamed woman who just turned 29 for the 11th time. I'm not going to tell you any names, but happy birthday. You know who you are. All great numbers. Uh, when we're back together, I've got one thing on my mind, and you know what it is if you know me. There will be cake, right? There will be cake. Well, I want to start my message this morning with a story told by author and pastor Erwin McManus, who tells uh, about a significant talk that he had with his son. McManus says, one summer my son went to a youth camp. He was just a little guy, and I was kind of glad because it was a church camp. I, I figured he wasn't going to hear all those ghost stories because ghost stories can really cause a kid to have nightmares. But unfortunately, since it was a Christian camp and they didn't tell ghost stories because we, you know, don't believe in ghosts. They told demon and Satan stories instead. And so when Aaron got home, he was terrified. Dad, don't turn off the light, he'd say before going to bed. No, Daddy, could you stay here with me? Daddy, I'm afraid. They told all these stories about demons. And, and I wanted to say they're, they're not real. But he goes, Daddy, Daddy, would you pray for me that I'd be safe? And McManus goes on to say, he says, I could feel it. I could feel warm blanket Christianity beginning to wrap around him. A life of safety, safety, safety. I said, Aaron, I will not pray for you to be safe. I will pray that God will make you dangerous. So dangerous that demons will flee when you enter the room. And Aaron goes, all right, but pray I'd be really, really dangerous, Daddy. I, I wonder this morning if you've ever come to that place in your life where you stop asking God to give you a safe life and pray that he'll make you a dangerous follower of Jesus. We, we just started a, a series on Paul's letter to the Philippians, and, and last week we talked about how God wants us to thrive. And we talked about how the number one tool God uses to accomplish that in our lives is pain and difficulty and, and suffering. And what we were really hinting at last week was that the huge draw and lure in our world to merely live a life of, of circumstance enhancement or, or lifestyle upgrade. And, and this can creep into our spiritual life where we get the idea that God's job is to make the, the circumstances of our lives pleasant for us. But for the Apostle Paul, his, his deeper aim was not to try to get God to engineer better circumstances for himself, but it was this devotion to a partnership with God in the circumstances that God put him in. And when someone lives that way, that's a, a dangerous Christian. That's someone who can change the world. And, and we're going to spend our time today exploring the inner dynamics that, that freed Paul to, to live that way, to enabled him to, to walk that out. And, and we may not be there, but, but Paul leaves a good trail for us to follow and, and hopefully we'll be inspired to kind of pick up the, the crumbs and move in that direction. So where we left off last time, we saw how God used Paul's time in prison to ad, advance the gospel, to, to further God's kingdom in, in some of the power centers of Rome. 
And, and Paul goes on to describe one of the other benefits of his imprisonment. Paul says in verse 14 that because of my chains, because of, not in spite of, but because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. My, my chains, or in other words, my, my courage, he says, has given others courage to be courageous. That's the thing. A, a, a single act of courage can do that. Courage, as someone once said, is often the, the tipping point for extraordinary change. And so it's someone like Rosa Parks saying, I, I'm not giving up my seat on this bus. And, and in that moment on December 1st, 1955 in Montgomery, Alabama, Rosa Parks became an international icon for the civil rights movement. A single act of courage that had a great impact. It's Martin Luther breaking from the Catholic Church in the 16th century. Or how about Tiananmen Square in, in 1989? An unnamed man, still anonymous to this day, stood down a, a line of tanks sent by his repressive government. And that single act of courage did more to encourage the world to stand against the brutality and tyranny than a, a thousand speeches could have ever done. Because courage, courage <laughs> inspires courage. And Paul says, because of my, my courage in facing this trouble, because of my chains, the church is getting bold. And I, and I rejoice in that. There are believers who are taking risks, who are, who are stepping out, who are, uh, you know, spreading the message. They're becoming dangerous for God. That's the, the kind of ripple effect that can happen in the, in the kingdom of God. And it starts with one, one person who's willing to fully give their lives to Christ. One, one sold out life is absolutely contagious, more contagious than COVID-19. And it inspires courage and, and that's what's happening because of Paul's imprisonment. And then Paul goes on in verse 18, and, and I think these are some of the breadcrumbs that we're meant to follow. This is where Paul kind of draws his courage from. He says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Christ Jesus, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. And that last line, uh, that last phrase, what has happened to me will turn out to my, for my deliverance, there's lots of debate about what that's getting at, what that means. It could mean his release from prison, but he later says he's, he's not sure of his release. I think it has more to do with his confidence that what has happened will work out for good, for God's glory. I mean, this is the guy who wrote Romans 8, 28, you know, for all things work together for good for those who love God. But he goes on to describe two factors or, or two supports that, that have led him to this confidence. He says, through your prayers and through the help of the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit. I want to talk about this for a bit. First, Paul is counting on the prayers of his friends. Folks, you can pray. And, and you can believe in prayer, but, but Paul absolutely sought out and, and counted on the prayers of his friends. We, we know this because time and time again in, in Paul's letters, he asks the churches to pray for him. In 1 Thessalonians 5, he, he asks with some urgency, brothers and sisters, pray for us. He says to the Corinthians, you must help us by prayer. Before he sets out another time on this dangerous journey for Jerusalem, Paul writes the Roman church and he, 
He asks them for their prayers. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Perhaps most compelling is his description that we find in 2 Corinthians of uh, some other troubles that he found himself in. Listen to this. He says, we were under great pressure. Far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. And he goes on to say, he says, indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to, to deliver us. And don't miss this. As you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us, again, in answer to the prayers of many. Quite a few of us forget this, this basic truth about Christian prayer. No matter how far we are along or how far we think we are along, prayer has very little to do with our capability and has everything to do with God's power. Prayer is ultimately in this life, as St. Therese uh, describes it, a cry of the heart, which is essentially a, a cry from the very depths of our being, you know, a cry of trust and reliance and surrender. And Paul was never too big to forget that, that he needed the prayers of his friends. He always remembered that the Christian life, as he'd later describe in verse 27, is a, a striving together. It's a, a, a linking arms together, fighting for each other. That's what we do when we pray for one another. We're, we're fighting for each other. And amazingly, according to Scripture, this simple act of bringing our friends to God, asking on their behalf, can open doors and, and release resources and power and encouragement and spiritual strength to our friends. I've seen it happen. Not to mention when, when people are in deep woods, one of the greatest comforts is the awareness that other people are praying, lifting them up before God. We have at least three families in our church right now who are battling cancer and they're, they're in the middle of it. They're in the thick of it. And, and I got to tell you, each of them have told me how much our prayers matter, how much that's a source of strength for them. William Barclay once said, he said, we can't call a person our friend unless we pray for them. So there's a, first the help that Paul receives through prayer. Then Paul also talks about the help from the spirit of Jesus uh, or the Holy Spirit. Paul would later say in, in chapter four, verse 13, and, and that's, by the way, really the, the theme verse of the book of Philippians. He says, I can do all things. I can do this. I can be in chains, in prison, and I can thrive. How? Through him who gives me strength. He's talking about Christ and the, the spirit of Christ who gives him strength. Some of you would know who Corey Ten Boom was. She was a hero of mine growing up. I heard lots about her and read her biography. Uh, so good. But she was a Dutch Christian who, along with her family, was imprisoned in German POW camps during World War II for, for hiding Jews. They were caught hiding Jews in their home. The rest of her family would perish in those camps. But, but Corrie ten Boom spent the rest of her life testifying to God's sufficiency in her life. And, and she described a life of being filled with the Holy Spirit. She described it this way. She said, I have a, a glove here in my hand. 
The, the glove can't do anything by itself, but when my hand is in it, it can do many things. True, it is, is not the glove, but my hand in the glove that acts. She goes on to say we are gloves, and it's the Holy Spirit in us who is the hand, who, who does the job. We simply have to make room for the hand so that every finger is filled. What a line. We just need to make room for the hand. So good. And, and folks, I, I think we're fooling ourselves to think that we can thrive spiritually without the Spirit. This week, I, I reviewed again some of the things that the Holy Spirit does in the life of the believer. For example, the Spirit instructs and, and teaches and, and reveals. The Spirit counsels and guides. That The Spirit assists us in our prayers. The Holy Spirit comforts us in our sorrows. He sends us on mission. He, he convicts us of our sin. That the Spirit beautifully testifies to us that we are God's beloved children. The Spirit empowers us and, and with gifts and ministry. The Spirit gives life and joy and, and love and spiritual strength, not to mention boldness and courage. No wonder Paul would pray in Ephesians 3, 6, I pray that out of God's glorious riches, he would strengthen you with power. How? Through his spirit in your inner being. And, and I don't know if, if this last season has confronted you with your limitations or your weakness or your need. I, I'm pretty much there on a daily basis. But cry out to God. Ask him to fill you with his spirit. Ask, ask him if you haven't felt like you've received it. Ask him for his spirit to help you by his spirit, to give you what is need, what you need. As his children, he longs to, to strengthen and empower and encourage us by his wonderful spirit. We got to make room for the hand. Moving on to verse 20, and this is important because we discover in verse 20 what Paul's mission in life is. We discover kind of what he's aiming at. He says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage. I like that line, sufficient courage. It'll be enough. So that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body. Exalted is the key word here, and it means magnified or, or shown to be great. And Paul continues that, that Christ would be exalted in his body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So what, so what Paul is saying here is that his hope and expectation and passion is that what he does with his body, what, what he does with kind of the way he lives, whether in life or death, his purpose is to magnify Christ. To, to really, in a way, blow Christ up, to show how great and magnificent Christ is, to exalt him. As the German philosopher George Hegel once said, life has value only when it has something valuable as its object. And, and Paul's saying the object of value in his life is Jesus, is Christ. You know, you know, we sometimes talk about having a life mission. You know, we, we, we do, right? That's familiar language. But Paul kind of expands that to include a, his, his death. He's got kind of a death mission. 
And Paul says, Christ shall be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And he links it up with the corresponding words, live and die in the next verse. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, what does he mean by that? How is death gaining something? Because isn't, I mean, really, isn't death the ultimate loss? Well, in verse 23, he shows why, why die, dying is gain for Paul and, and for you if you're a Christian. He says, my desire is to depart. My desire is to die and be with Christ. He says, for that is better. And one version says, for death is better by far. Paul, Paul's saying, and he does so with conviction that, that he'd be better off dead. And I don't think here he, he's got a, a death wish. I, I don't think he just wants to kind of escape his trou- troubles like I kind of did when I was just before exams in, in university, right? It was just like, please, beam me up, Scotty. Get me out of here. Paul instead is full of life and energy, and he's, he's quite ready to get back to work the minute they let him out of prison. But Paul's also a man who is, in, is deeply, deeply in love with Jesus, The main thing about dying is it'll mean that he'll be with Jesus. He'll be with his Lord, his his master, his king. A while back, I came across a letter, a fascinating letter written by a Christian relief worker named Karen Watson. Karen wrote this letter just prior to going to the Middle East where she'd be working in Mosul, Iraq. Imagine this was just after the Iraqi war, just during it still. The letter was dated March 7th, 2003, and and Karen was killed along with four other relief workers one year later on March 15th, 2004. The the letter that she writes is to the pastors of the church that sent her out. And it reads this, Dear dear Pastor Phil and, and Pastor Roger, you should only be opening this letter in the event of my death. When God calls, there are no regrets I I, I tried to share my heart with you as much as possible, my heart for the nations. I I wasn't called to a place. I was called to him. To obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. His glory, my reward. One of the most important things to, to remember right now is to preserve the work. I am writing this as if I'm still working with my people group. And I thank you all so much for your prayers and and your generous support. Surely your reward in heaven will be very great. Thank you for investing in my life and my spiritual well-being. Keep sending missionaries out, she says. Keep raising up new young pastors. In regards to any service, keep it small and simple. Yes, simply just preach the gospel. Be bold and preach the life-saving, life-changing, forever eternal gospel. Give glory and honor to our Father. Let me, let me tell you what I think is the Christian's heart, and I just love what she says. Listen to this. Care more than some think is wise. Risk more than some think is safe. Dream more than some think is practical. Expect more than some think is possible. Then check this out. This is what she says. She says, I was not called to comfort or success, but to obedience. She says, there is no joy outside of knowing Jesus and serving him. I love you too in my church family in his care, Karen. I I love that. She's she's, uh, going overseas on a mission for God. And so she writes this letter on the event of her death. And it it got me thinking, aren't we all on a mission from God? (laughs) 
Isn't he sending all of us out into our world? And it may be that he's not sending us to Iraq tomorrow. Uh, I mean, he might. Hillside, one of our major global outreach projects is actually in Dehuk, Iraq. But sent or not, across the street or across the world, maybe kind of writing a letter like Karen wrote might be a good exercise. You see, death for the, the follower of Jesus is not to be feared. Death will be great gain. Paul and Karen say so. Now, to be clear on this, what do we gain? Back to verse 20 and 21. Verse 20, my expectation is that Christ will be exalted in my life. Verse 21, for me to live is Christ. So so the reason that Paul gives that that Christ is to be exalted or worshipped is for him to live as Christ. What does this mean? We we read about this in in chapter 3, verse 8, where Paul says, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them rubbish or garbage, that I might gain Christ. Same word again. He's saying, whether by living or dying, what we gain is Jesus. What we get is Christ. To live is Christ means practically to count everything as lost now in this life compared to the value of, of gaining Christ. To live is Christ means experience, experiencing Christ as gain now in this life, not just in death. But what does that teach us about the aim of our lives? Well, it means exalting Christ. It means lifting him up. It's, it's really what life about. Remember the line in, in Karen Watson's letter? There's no joy outside of knowing Jesus and serving him. Uh, we used to sing an, an old chorus here, uh, here at Hillside and, and many churches around the world, I'm sure, that were based on the words of Psalm 42. It was called, As the Deer Pants for the Water. And it really speaks about a person who's thirsty, who's so thirsty for God and the, and the chorus has this line in the last verse, which really kind of gets at this whole thing. He says, I want you, God, more than gold or silver, for only you can satisfy. You alone are the real joy giver. You're the apple of my eye. And, and this is what Paul's getting at, that, that it's better by far to live a life where we learn the truth that, that Christ is better. He's better than money. He's better than stuff. He's, he's better than family or career or retirement or fame or food or friends. He's better than Netflix. And this is really the, the essence of the Christian life, experiencing Christ as the greatest gain. <laughs> or in other words, treasuring Jesus and, and learning to be satisfied in him. As, as someone once said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And if we learn to prize him and appreciate him in this life and, and love him in this life, how much more, how much better will we prize him and, and be satisfied him in, in our death? And so we're, we're called to pursue that. We're called to, to strive after that. We, we want to do that as, as individuals. We want to do that as a church. Because magnifying Jesus is, is, folks, it's why we were here. It's why we were made. And until we pursue that from him, we'll never be satisfied. We'll never know true joy. Uh, you know, I have vivid memories as a kid uh, of, of my father taking me to auction sales. Yeah, I, I think we once uh, came home with a big purple bathtub. I'm serious. And, and thankfully, it didn't go in our home. It actually went to our cottage where it seemed like auction sale purchases kind of went. 
But before every auction, my, my dad would, would give me a little speech and he'd say to me, he'd say, don't scratch your nose at the wrong time, son. That, would, that could be bad. And he'd also say, he says, always remember this. He says, when you go to an auction sale, always know your upper limits, right? I've never forgotten that. What's the most you'll pay? Set your limit. But here's the thing in our walk with Jesus. Jesus doesn't allow us to set an upper limit. He doesn't ask for anything except our whole life. Jesus said, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jonathan Edwards, the, the famous preacher, and I'll close with this, used to say, I, I go out to preach with two propositions in mind. First, every person ought to give their life to Christ. Second, whether or not anyone else gives him his life, I will give him mine. To conclude, Bill, would you just lead us in just a couple verses of that song that we sang earlier, Give Me Jesus. And, and folks, maybe this could be a prayer for you, that you would pray along with the words of that song. Let's pray. Let's sing.